as industry, as designers, as you're looking at your supply chains, figuring out where waste is going and how you shore that up, especially anything that is potentially toxic, airborne, water, whatever, that can be a huge thing that's going to help so many people that they'll never meet. Welcome to Play In Conversations, the podcast where we delve into the world of design and explore the endless opportunities that await designers and brands. I'm Simon Martin, Head of Content Strategy at Play & Co, and joining me is Jason McKinney, Senior Designer at Play & Co. Together, we'll be your hosts as we embark on insightful design conversations that inspire and inform. Andrew Schwartz is the Director of Sustainability and Global Affairs at the Center for Earth Ethics. He has over a decade of experience working with community leaders and government officials, creating multilateral coalitions that tackle some of the toughest challenges our world is facing, like extreme poverty, food insecurity, climate change, environmental policy, and ecosystem restoration. Andrew is who I go to when I want to better understand global trends and cultural values. I hope you enjoy our conversation where we discuss how these problems are connected and how designers can play a role by accelerating change in the right direction. Andrew, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background and, and um, where you find yourself in your career today? Yeah, you bet. So I'm Andrew Schwartz. I am the director of uh, sustainability and global affairs for the Center for Earth Ethics. It's a small, small nonprofit that works at the crossroads of kind of the climate crisis and the ethical, moral responsibility aspects of how are we approaching it? How do we uh, lift up those who are the most impacted by climate change? How are we bringing together different stakeholders? to get like a plurality of understandings and opinions and viewpoints on, you know, we're all seeing the same problems. We're all, ex especially now, experiencing some level of impact from climate change. And so I think, you know, I've been with the center for, since 2017, I've been doing climate work for about a decade and kind of the last 10 years and especially the last five years, I'd say, you've seen a really dramatic change in how people are experiencing climate change, how we're talking about climate change, going from this, this sense of theory of what will happen when we kind of get to wherever there is. And now that we're there, we're seeing, you know, all these impacts daily across the world. It used to be more in pockets in the global South uh, with, you know, frontline communities, as we call them, people who are kind of right there, whether, for those weather impacts and just coincidentally a lot of that's been in the global south and there's a lot of reasons why the global south is more prone to climate than the global north is um but now it's you know it's unavoidable and so the conversation has really changed as a result of that so i went from early in my career doing a lot of just education amplification trying to help folks understand what climate change even is what the impacts are going to be and now we're in the space of climate change is here. What does mitigation look like? What does adaptation look like? How do we advocate for those who are really getting hit? Um, and then how are we really looking at solutions? And solutions takes a bunch of different vectors. And that's kind of where my work is now, of working with different folks, whether it's at the United Nation, different development circles, working with local communities, working with indigenous peoples, working with faith communities, uh, environmental justice groups, trying to like help articulate problems, help articulate solutions, 
how do we speed these things up? How are we looking and preferentializing folks who are the most impacted right now? And then how do we scale and deploy you know, these solutions equitably in a way that is, uh, there's a word that's really thrown around now is called nature positive, which is uh, a questionable phrase because you can throw a lot of things into it, but in ways that are mutually beneficial uh, for the people and the planet. And so that's kind of, uh, my day job uh, revolves around a, that kind of work, generally a lot on ecosystem restoration and other stuff, trying to say, we know what the problems are. How are we focusing on solutions uh, and solutions for the people who need it the most right now? Is there like a case study example of something recently you worked on that sort of encapsulates that maybe through a manufacturing lens or, or something in, in, that, in that space? I guess one that we can look at is more talking about food systems. And so, um, and that has a lot of like food systems, for instance, are responsible for about a third of all uh, greenhouse gas emissions. And that's from the fertilizers that are put into the ground to the transportation of the food uh, from farm to uh, grocery store, grocery store to counter, and then a lot looking at food waste, both with, you know, just, um, you know, throw it away, moldering, all that stuff. And so I think a lot of what we did a couple of years ago, uh, the UN did this thing they called the Food System Summit, was basically uh, directed by uh, the UN Secretary General to say, like, food's a real issue. You know, climate change is uh, taking a big cut at yields every year. Hunger, you know, hunger is on the rise. Uh uh, one of the special rapporteurs and kills me that I'm forgetting his name right now uh, was basically saying that, you know, climate change is posing to undo the last 50 years of progress on human rights and hunger and all these different things. And so there's this large sensibility of, all right, how do we look at the soup to nuts, you know, um, the entire supply chain? And it was part of the work that I did for the Food System Summit was organize a bunch of dialogues that brought together a variety of stakeholders, creating these multilateral conversations, whether you're from the UN, whether you're from development agencies looking at big nonprofits and NGOs, and then some, um, you know, uh, food producers are, especially the big ones, are reticent to walk into these spaces, uh, but then also working with like farmers and smallholder farmers, basically saying like, how are we looking at this supply chain as a whole? How do we understand what's really not working? And so you can look at the palm oil industry, you can look at uh, beef and cattle, you can look at um, the monocropping, you know, big industrial conventional farming. Uh, there's a whole conversation to have in there about like precision farming that's being born out of AI right now uh, to try to help buffet some of the major emissions that happen due to conventional farming. Uh, and it, in my role in our position at, with the Center for Earth Ethics, what we're driving at is this question of we we know what's not working. We know what communities are being excluded. We know what communities are being exploited. We know how these food systems are hugely detrimental to global health, biodiversity health, ecosystem health, and trying to then say, so what's the through line? We know right now we need to feed 8 billion people. We're probably going to get 10 billion people here in the next you know, 30 years, which is a shocking number of people. And looking at all these externalities that are from the food system and looking at the way that food is being produced right now and trying to 
really take this large scale approach and say, all right, here's what we know. How do we move through some of these nuances? How do we look at all the different aspects of the supply chain and figure out what needs to be transformed? How do we move from more conventional farming to agroecological farming? How do we talk about food waste? How do we talk about the plastics that we use in food, which is a major piece of this uh industry that is flies a lot under the radar in terms of waste and pollution excess and trying to uplift all these different aspects of food system design and say where are points that can be changed what are points that need to be changed dramatically right now and then how do we advocate for a more sustainable food system moving forward that can meet climate shocks that can meet supply chain shocks and get food to people who need it which you know I'm guessing the three of us are probably doing all right. Um, but our prices are rising too, you know? Yep. And so, and then you have people, you know, 80% of Africans I was reading, you know, one meal to the next is tough, you know? And so how do we look at that? How do we make sure that these places that are heavily reliant on, um, uh, on imported food, make sure they're getting food And the middle East is right there too. Middle East, like Jordan, for instance, 98 to 99% of the food that goes into Jordan is imported, you know, and that's due to the, what they can and can't grow. That's also due to their changing climatic experience. You've got the, uh, cop 28, the big climate conversation that happens with the United Nations is happening in Dubai this year. And there's a heavy focus on food because the Middle East can only grow what they can grow. And they're trying to do interesting things with vertical farming, with all these different pieces. But at the end of the day, like there's six major growing regions in the world. You've got the U.S., you've got parts of South America, you've got uh, Southern Russia, Ukraine, you've got China. There's another one that I'm forgetting, different parts of Europe. Um you know, but look at the climate shocks that are happening in the Midwest right now. Look what's going on in South America, you know. And so you're saying here, like, our system doesn't work because it's reliant upon these systems that for the last 40 years or so have been really, really steady and efficient and dependable. They're not anymore. And that's yeah. not because of climate change. That's looking at soil exhaustion. That's looking at monocropping. That's looking at the yeah. the impacts of looking at a heavy dependence on uh, genetic, gen, genetically modified seeds. And so you have all these things where it's not just climate. We're getting to a lot of uh, roadblocks yeah. just because of the technology and the design of the system right now. Yeah. And so there's this this piece where you're going, all right, we need to figure out what is the new system. And there's this part where we're like, well, let's just hit this wall as hard as we can with as many hammers as we can with the tools that we already have and hope that we break through. And then there's this entire other line of thinking. And I think this is where it gets hard, right? With like the power and the money that exists in the current system. People don't like change generally. Um, they don't like expensive change either, but we know it doesn't work. And so we're like, all right, so how do we design this new future? How do we work local communities? How do we do things that are sustainable? And so that's a major part of this is looking at these large systems. You know, you can do the big blowout at the 30,000 feet and just say, okay, here's, here are these pieces. And then a lot of the work that I try to do is zoom in. And cool. so you get the people who are up high looking, and then you get that farmer from Guatemala that we're working with, they were in the, in the highlands and the drylands of Guatemala. And she's like, all right, I have a fourth grade education. 
I'm now training women in my community how to grow their food because we can't rely on the markets anyway, but we're having a hard time growing the food because we're not getting as much rain, things are changing. And so, you know, you have this like, all right, we need to figure out how do we get more peaches in places, but. We'd like to take a moment to remind you that Play In Conversations is brought to you by Play Co. If you want to explore more about design opportunities, discover new insights, or connect with Play Co. for a design project, be sure to visit playinco.com. A really interesting picture that I think is applicable, not just in agriculture, but like energy production, like a lot of the things that we're going to be that are going to be facing change due to climate change um, and our systems that we've kind of that have been loaded in in one direction and done without real innovation for a long time. Mm -hmm. Uh, I heard you mention, you know, like vertical farming is robotics and AI kind of moving out into into agriculture. Um, We I I know you kind of look through our our recent report, Business as Usual, that we published. Um, We get into a lot of that. I think like one of the biggest questions is about like how, um, you know, this new talent that's developing these new kind of systems and platforms and frameworks that could potentially serve, you know, like a farmer in Guatemala, how, how does that, how does that technology that moves those industries forward in reaction to climate change and in, in reaction to lower yields, trying to, you know, get past genetically modified, you know, seed and actually get into like laser weed control, you know, AI helping you create more yield out of uh, a square, a square foot of, of land. Um, how does that, how do those things become like equitably, you know, used globally when you're, you're facing, you know, communities that have a lower level of education. It, it, it's kind of scary to me kind of seeing it that in that perspective, but from a, uh, from a d- designer's perspective, like how do we bake into, you know, our work, the, the, those kind of constraints that create kind of an, an equitable kind of result, if possible. Yeah. And that's where it gets tough, man. I think there's this, there's this large conversation. It's, and it, it's much more complex than just kind of these two sides, but you have conventional farming, right? And that's that's what we're used to, you know, like you've got the GMO seeds, you have, you know, and they're predisposed to this cocktail of pesticides and herbicides, you know, and it's kind of, it's what's worked, you know, but it's worked in a way that it is, uh, you know, basically humans trying to control and bend nature and the soil and the land and the crops to what we need. And that has really, really demonstrably negative impacts. You can just look at the nutrition of food that we have now versus like 80 years ago. And there's reasons for that beyond just the amount of herbicides um, or, you know, GMOing. It's happened. It's also important to say that like GMO crops have done wonders for nutrition and health around the world. Like there's so many less people hungry now because of what science has done to these seeds. So I don't yeah. want to like discount that. Yeah. But but then we're running up against the limitations of this technology, the limitations yeah. of the design, as you're saying. And so if you look at like AI and you look at precision farming or precision agriculture, for instance, what it's trying to do is trying to sharpen that blade. So it's saying, all right, instead of using um we can use 30% less pesticide, 80% less pesticide. We can, you know, use lasers and all this different technology to get in front of uh, the need for this much pesticide or herbicide use. That's great. You know, and I think there needs to be this both and within farming an egg that says, how do we keep these large systems that keep our, you know, primary cereal grains 
ready and available. So your rice, your wheat, yeah. all those things, your maize. But then there's also kind of on the other side, this big movement for agroecology. And agroecology is essentially, you know, working within earth systems, working within bioregional culture or bio, your bioregion in terms of what crops naturally grow there. How does the farm interact with a broader ecosystem? It's using uh, less pesticides, less herbicides. It's trying to bring in while, it, you know, it's, it's more yeah. integrative with the earth systems. Yeah. And that, and this is where the, kind of the rub is, is yeah. you need, we need desperately to replenish soil. Like soil is yeah. getting to the point where it's nearly exhausted and it's exhausted because we keep monocropping. We haven't done crop rotation in big ways with these big cereals because they're like, well, we can just do a new fertilizer. We'll do this new seed, you know, yeah. we'll adapt, you know, it's kind of this reaction to last yeah. year's crops or 10 years ago's crops and saying, all right, how do we need to shift this? But that has that has limitations. Yeah. yeah, it's so, funny. You, I, I feel like these these kind of parallels to like you know like transportation, energy production. It's like we've just kind of adapted forward, like you know, just not traditional oil drilling. Now we're fracking. We're trying to create the more and more ways to do the same thing, but we're really starting to face like real world impact from the the adverse effects on on our planet, and you know, and that's led to like global health issues that what, you know, some of these things have brought up whole populations that were struggling, but it has become an abundance that has also had adverse effects in, in people's health globally because of, you know, fast food, all those types of things, yeah. the, the business side of things and, and, you know, and, and kind of the, these deep rooted systems have come up together and you have to kind of break those things. But we're, we're, yeah, we're at this, this kind of intersection, um, where, you know, a lot of people are going to lose jobs and a lot of these like longstanding industries really need to retool themselves. But that's kind of being forced on us in, in a lot of ways. I also heard you mention at the beginning, like mitigation and adaptation. Can you maybe go a little little deeper into kind of how you define both of those and in the ways that you see those being being used in the world right now? Yeah. So, I mean, mitigation is just it's a really important conversation, the mitigation versus adaptation. And we can start with the adaptation. It's basically. I mean, precision farming is part of this, the AI pieces of this kind of, you know, how do we how do we basically say like, OK, the world's getting hotter. We're having less water. What do we do to respond to that? How do cities respond? How do businesses respond? How do we look at our supply chains, you know, to adapt to this eventuality? And that's kind of it's really troubling because it's like, well, there's nothing we can do. You know, this is the world as we have it. Therefore, let's figure out what this looks like. The problem is, is with the rate and scale of climate change that we're looking at right now, there's no version that we can really adapt to to keep society functioning as it is. There's, it's just not like there will be breakdowns. We're already experiencing breakdowns. We've seen them from COVID. We can see how delicate these supply chains are. And so the, the adaptation argument, which is important, you know, you need to, we need to be responding to what's happening in the world right now, but that's not enough. It can't be enough. And it's a terrible excuse to keep the status quo going. And the, the mitigation is saying, all right, so what is propelling the climate change crisis forward? It's our re reliance on fossil fuels. We yep. need to stop burning fossil fuels. We need to get these greenhouse gases out of the atmosphere. And so a lot of the work that you know, we do at the center is putting that first is saying like, yep. great, adapt. However, we need to phase down fossil fuels 
as fast as possible. You know, we need to be able to hit these targets. We need to stay shy of this 1.5 degrees Celsius, you know, above pre-industrial averages. That needs to be our goal. Because once you trespass that 1.5 degree barrier, all of a sudden you start having enormous hits on biodiversity. You know, we get into this uncharted territory of what can we actually reasonably adapt to? And by we, I mean everything on this globe. And so that's where, you know, right now projections have us. If we continue on, like nothing changes after today, we're going to hit 2.8. God knows what that will look like. Yeah. In the last week, we've had, you know, like hurricane and hitting Southern California. We got like Canada's burning, uh, you know, uh, Northeastern Washington is on fire. The, you know, my morning light is this nice orange glow. You can look straight at the sun, you know, that's that's just in the last week. And it feels like that type of thing is happening more and more often. Um, I know we've talked about this before, too, is like kind of how do you. Um, like from a designer's perspective, we like we see our opportunity is to like help, you know, change behavior, influence behavior or incentivize through like, you know, a, a new experience. Like how can we bring that to a product or an experience or a service that can help this change? And, and the reason we're having conversations like this is to fully understand like the the, the possibilities of what what we may be moving forward into and where the trends are going. Um yeah. How do you see, like, yeah, how is that being done right now as far as, like, you know, incentivization um, versus, you know, like, I, I feel like Tesla is one of the, uh, always a great example of, you know, they packaged up uh, something that is a more sustainable product, but in a, in a you know, a brand expression and an experience that I think is better than uh, a typical internal combustion engine vehicle, you know, like those things start to shift a, a whole consumer mindset. And that's where I, I, it's really interesting to come at these problems that way. So it'd be interesting to hear your your thoughts on that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think like what Tesla did and I think what a lot of companies are doing is, you know, you you read the market, you read what people want. And there's a big, big bunch of millennials, you know, as Gen X may or may not or Gen Z may or may not get money because of, you know, the way their economy is structured. You know, you have a bunch of people who are afraid who want to be part of the solution rather than part of the problem. And I think within the the constraints of, um, you know, society and our current economy, you know, you have to do that within consumer choice. And so I think a lot of companies are trying to do that. And, I, and there's, there's two ways, right? There's the, we want to keep selling stuff and we want to keep on hitting our target markets. How do we keep ensuring doing that? All right, how are we looking at our sourcing? How do we look at, you know, is this equitable? Is this renewable? Is this sustainable? You know, does our design meet some sort of criteria that people have so that they can feel good about the purchase that they're making? Yeah. And I think there's a lot of, I think Tesla, uh, has you know was a vanguard on this. They made sustainability. They made EV sexy in a way that cars, current or previous iterations of EVs weren't. You know, and I think that really it, it created the space for all these other EVs to come in. You know, and that's really great. I think you know if you look at energy more generally, you're looking at like the way that. Uh, solar or wind or these sort of renewable technologies are being packaged and sold, not just to consumers, but also to producers and suppliers. You know, the New York Times did this thing a couple weekends ago uh, where they're like, the sustainable energy revolution is here. And they 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 made uh, Tulsa 
the like one of the their focus areas and you know tulsa is you know this is a heartland this is oil heartland this is the backbone of the economy they need to sell it to a culture that is renewable adverse you know and so i think yeah. you can look at what those messaging and marketing designs are how do you get workers to buy in how do you break through a culture of oil into a culture of renewables you know and you can do that not just you know in the oil belt you can look up into appalachia into coal country you know these places that were boom towns because of coal and now are some of the poorest countries counties in the country Yep. because of you know the removal of this economy that's why you got to talk about just transition you know it's yep. not just taking oil away it's how do we replace economies yep. and i think yep. you know a, a strong design language and a strong ability to message and to showcase the positive benefits how is this supporting your family how is this supporting your kids how is this supporting your future you know yep. how do you fall in love in a place like this yep. you know and you can be there forever i think that that's been a big piece of it because there's so many people who are afraid yeah. that their future is not tenable because yeah. of the current reality. So you got that piece of design. And then there's this other design that I think is really an interesting problem for, for manufacturers, for anybody in the industry. It's like, how do we keep this going? You know, like there's a limited amount of resource. We are an extractive first economy, but we can only extract so much. Yeah. And so you're seeing this within our supply chains of there's just not enough to go around. You know, if you look at, I mean, anything from lumber, to, I mean, go to a store. Everything is more expensive. And part of that is just because of COVID, design shocks, and corporate greed. That's real. But then there's this other part of like, we just can't get the same amount of stuff. Look at our fish yeah. stocks. Look at all these yeah. things. So as a business, you also need to look backwards and go, if I still want to be able to sell to my customers in 10 years, how do I make my side of the supply chain efficient, renewable, and sustainable? What yeah. am I doing? Like, how am I looking all the way down the block and saying this is what i need to do so that i can be in business in 10 years you know and that's not just that's not just like a wood or fisheries it's everything you know it's minerals yeah. it's a whole yeah. nine and so i think there's this dual this dual challenge of saying we have a limited amount of resources you know we've got to where we are today because we have mined and cut and extracted without conscience we can't do that anymore therefore what are we doing to help consumers understand that mentality that this throwaway culture, this throwaway economy is no longer tenable? Yeah. And then how do we also look back at industry standards, industry you know, expectations and just say this can't work either? Like we just can't keep on drilling and cutting and digging yeah. in the ways that we have. We can't keep throwing away in the ways that we have because yeah. there's a certain point you get to zero. You know, and we haven't hit it yet, but there's a certain point where you're like, oh, shit, we don't have this anymore. This is gone. Yeah. What, what about yeah. what about some uh, industries or specific companies that you think are paving the way currently, Andrew, in terms of being uh, sort of at least giving a, a more optimistic viewpoint of where things could be heading? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I think there's a lot. Fashion is coming, having a. Uh, a come to Jesus moment and a lot of like you look at the one end of fast fashion where it's like every other week there's some new trend line that your kid needs to buy off Amazon and then you have the Patagonians on the other end of this and just going we need to restructure our entire methodology and help our consumers understand why and so I think I mean Patagonia is being lifted up 
because of that, because they have been very outspoken up front. They've, you know, made an earth a shareholder, you know, the whole nine yards. And I think that that to me is an incredible example of what needs to be done um, in terms of it's not just because they're not they're not forfeiting any of their design. They're not forfeiting any of like the quality of their product. What they're doing is just being really honest with their consumers and granted their consumer is, you know, middle-class plus. And so they have a different ability, you know, to make choices with their purchases. But I do think fashion is kind of understanding that their amount of waste, their amount of, um, you know, what it takes to make a shirt is, you know, they need to readjust. And so I think that, that industry is certainly making some really cool moves. And it's a way to like, it's a very obvious expression, both of the brand and the consumer to say, this is where my value lies. And this is how I'm going to literally wear it on my sleeve. And I think that's, that is a model that's really nice to look at. And I think, you know, you can also look at um, what some producers are doing, whether it's uh, in the uh, in the food movement, whether it's the organics, whether it's in, you know, kind of um, the, you know, whether it's a impossible burger or that sort of kind of saying, like, we know that we can't have the same reliance on cattle and beef. Like yeah. we can, we need to reduce the amount of meat that we're eating generally yeah. one for our health and two for the planet. Like yeah. it's just nuts. Yeah. Um, and so you're seeing a lot of innovation within the food system field of either trying to really lean into this agroecological modeling and farming and trying to make that more accessible and the way that the vegetarian movement and the vegan movement, uh, what you're seeing in terms of the quality of food, the diversity of food, the availability and like the price competition of a, a, a veg or a vegan to a more traditional meat meal. And so I think you're also seeing a lot of that in that space of saying, we see our limitations. We are actively yeah. going to be uh, investing on both ends of the supply and ad of creating a product that has longevity. Yeah. Yeah. It's it, like we've seen it time and time again of like, you, you can't really just like guilt the consumer into making a more sustainable choice. Like it has to be like a competitive choice. It has to be on par with what you're doing. And then you got to I mean, we we have to be building like products or manufacturing or, you know, um, look at companies like Wild Type that are like doing a lab grown, you know, salmon. Uh, right. We have to build these platforms and systems that can achieve, you know, the experience that we expect out of that product and then get it down to the price point we expect, knowing that. I mean, inflation is going to keep going on a lot of these things. Um, in our report, we have like this awesome chart about like, you know, our health services, food, housing, like all these things are, are have gone up in price over the last 20 years. And the stuff that like we used to, I think, pre-COVID value more like phones and computers have all dipped in price and people are holding on to those things longer before buying them. And I feel like those kind of consumer behaviors have shifted at the same time as many of those companies creating, you know, like Apple's got a great like aluminum recycling, like product recycling program. Like they're, they're doing a great job, but still still have to you know support the the business that they've built and the people that they employ and that's all kind of tied to the same thing so yeah, yeah super interesting um be cool to hear a little more like i mean we've talked a bunch about like decarbonization you know 
travel habits. Like I, th- I think COVID did a lot. Uh, like as I mean, obviously as bad as it was, it, it brought to the forefront, like, you know, this momentum of growth and the interconnectivity globally of like food producer, like, you know, food producing regions, you know, the, the, the war in Ukraine, like has shown like all of that supply chain issue can just come grinding to a halt. And this uh, kind of push, you know, the IRA has helped uh, kind of move forward of like bringing manufacturing and a lot of these things back more local to either your country or your your region um, in the face of climate change. It feels like a, a trend that's happening so that we can build more resilient communities, not knowing what's what's coming coming at us in the in the coming kind of decade. Um, where do you kind of see, do you see a lot of those things shifting in that same way that, that I think we have in our research? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think COVID, yeah, COVID was awful, but it also like it, <clears throat> it exposed a lot of the weak points that we were going to see one way or the other, it just like sped it up. And yeah. so, and I, and it, it made people change. I mean, it's, I think that's the remarkable thing, right? Of like, well, there's no way we can do this. This is too hard. I, I remember the the hoops my wife had to try to jump through to be a remote worker. And they're like, this is just impossible. I'm sorry. It's, sure. I don't know how we're going to do this. And then like within a month, everybody was, was working from home. So I think it's like important to note that we can change quickly if we want to. There just has to be a good reason. Yeah. And I think, you know, of the benefits of, of being on the other side of COVID is kind of going like, all right, yeah, we we got to know our homes in a brand new way. We got to, we had to be here. So we really saw the good, the bad, and the ugly. And we saw a lot of things break. And then we see now, especially people's commitment to fixing those things and being really proud of where they are. And so, yeah, I see a lot of just that natural transition point. And then as you mentioned with, you know, the Inflation Reduction Act, the IRA, you know, like that's this $390 billion over the next 10 years towards you know, making this big jump, making, investing in renewability, investing in uh, domestic uh, manufacturing facilities, you know, and a lot of that's going towards this green green energy revolution. And so I think, and like why the IRA was so important for that is there aren't really other examples of a nation state investing in renewables like this like china is off the charts with their solar production they're also off the charts with their coal production and their oil production natural gas you know and you know and what that is and so it's like it's yeah. some good and then also a lot of bad but i think what what the ira did and what people are just experiencing period is going all right we want we know we need to do different how do we get there change is really hard but when you have an injection of 390 390 billion dollars that a lot of people are saying is gonna you know triple you know get us closer to that trillion dollars worth of investment as you look at all these different tax breaks as you look at the innovation that will cause subsequent investment um all of a sudden you're like oh man we can really change quickly you know, yeah. and we can do this. And whether you look at like air travel, um, which got hard anyways, got more expensive, it's cheapening now. I think for me, at least it was, you know, I had to travel a lot for my job. I still travel some. I was in, in Egypt last year. But like the like being able to access different parts of the state, my own community, you know, looking at the way that forced me to change for like what I thought a vacation was yeah. helped help me want to do more around just the state of Oregon 
and invest and explore that more. And we have, and you can see what that's done then for these different economies of these smaller towns of, I mean, just camping. And I think as I saw in your report that you put out, you know, then you're starting to look at more regional travel. You're looking at more of these services that you don't have to jump into like, uh, you know, a 16 to 50 person pasture plane. You can look at these more bespoke options that are using hydrogen, that are using more renewables that, you know, can hit a price point for a person like me where I can travel to Bend, I can travel to Spokane, I can go to Boise without having to have a 14 hour drive or a crazy flight. And so I think that sort of reintegration of, or not reintegration, but that like innovation and travel is, you know, I think is gonna be really beneficial. And then you also just have to look at, and we don't know how climate is going to change travel, but there's, we might be getting to a point in the next who knows how long where like it's not efficacious to travel we can't be putting out that sort of jet fuel you know it's going to get too expensive so what are these innovations within travel where you're not reliant on um these giant fossil fuel burning planes and i know there's a bunch of cool stuff with renewable diesel and you're looking at hydrogen like it's all there it's deployable but that's that's all those adaptation kind of solutions whereas yeah where where we see um you know kind of the uh, electric transportation coming from you know Tesla and the the many others that are going into that space, reaching aviation and its maturity and the talent that's supporting you know the startups that are that are creating that. It's really interesting to me to like think about when consumer behavior and uh, kind of aligns with the, the kind of the adjusted consumer behavior aligns with what these platforms will enable and you know the regional or local electric infrastructure that comes along with, you know, decarbonization or, or ground transport, when that meets the air, at what point does international travel become so expensive because we're not filling planes because people are traveling traveling regionally and we're creating new business opportunities and new kind of, you know, economic ecosystems that are just really in your state. It, right. it starts to get me thinking about, you know, like for your job, is it always going to be like a, is it always going to be global, you know, UN meetups or is it, are things going to get a little more kind of focused at the, the regional and state political level of people being engaged with their actual like communities resilience to wildfires and hurricanes and all those kind of things that we're facing right now that stuff just it really influences i think the for us a design you know brief and an outcome and where where we see you know consumer sentiment lying in the future yeah you bet i mean i think that's i i think that's also jason where you you get this how does industry help promote these sort of things? I think you're you're, you're seeing these trend lines. All right, all right yeah. we have to be closer. We don't have as much money to travel. What? How do we fill these gaps? And I think there is this, and this is where this culture piece and this expectation piece comes in of people don't want to lose these things, even though some of them have been lost. And so how does, how does industry, how does design, how, how does business fill that gap in yeah. a way? that is doing all the things that you're saying. All right, so how are we looking at more bioregional travel? How are we more proud of the things that are coming, you know, from our direct region? Like you and I live in the Cascadia region. How are we exploring all the fruits of this labor? You know, and that's, you know, from Northern California all the way up to, you know, halfway up BC. And, you know, so you have this sort of sentimentality of, I am proud of where I am. And I think in our globalized culture, there's almost this like, well, there's out there and then there's in here. Yeah. And I think how do we how do we cultivate pride? How do we how how do we providing opportunities for people to live into whatever dream they may have for themselves, but in a way that isn't crushing 
you know, the planet. It is working with what we have versus working against it. What do you think is, in your opinion, one of the most optimistic things happening right now? I mean, I know there's a lot that's not too optimistic, but but what is something that's optimistic (laughs) that, you know, a lot of our audience of, you know, designers um, and people involved with design, you know, like what's something that they can consider, you know, in their next design project uh, or just how they think about circle-based economies or how they can implement a systems-wide approach to, uh, you know, a new product line. Uh, What would you, what would would be your input there? I mean, honestly, the biggest thing that has me excited is just this, what we're seeing in the renewable energy space. I, I think that is, I mean, the price points are crazy low. Solar, if everything goes to plan, you know, renewables will, account for 40% of all energy produced in the US, you know, you're kind of seeing some interesting things happening in the EU, um, both in terms of renewables and in terms of like how land is being understood. And so I think for me, like one consider, because solar is getting so cheap and the IRA has this incentivizing like crazy as deployment, just invest in that, like make yourself energy independent and be very loud and proud about it. Just put it out there. like. This was completely made without any fossil fuel infrastructure. Great. Um, and then I think there's also, for me, you know, the, you, you mentioned circular economies. And so, and, and this gets back to making things, making your footprint smaller. And then also, how are we supporting the people within the communities where these products are created? You know, and so for me, it's a lot about looking how do you, how do you adjust your supply chain so as much as possible you're sourcing from within your region in a way that doesn't exhaust it, but is reinvesting into that community? And I think yeah. that's going to look different from business to business. But I think there is those pieces, especially around like issues of water, um, of, you know, if you're a water intensive sort of thing, how are you looking at the entire life cycle of the water that you're using? We're getting less of it. We're getting more in bursts, but in general, the world is getting less of it, um, the Northwest included. And so I think there's this really interesting conversation that can be had there as well. And so I think it's just kind of like looking at your place, looking where you are, looking at circularity, looking at the long term and those life cycles, um, utilizing what's being put on a platter right now because of tax breaks from the IRA. And then, you know, I think as more businesses are doing that and you can see it I'm doing a bunch of research on food not to keep keep coming back to food but just what people are doing about localizing food economies and you can yeah. talk about vertical farming and you can talk about these sort of things but just kind of saying we want to know where our food comes from and we also need to invest aggressively in that because the supply chains that we have like flying up fruit from panama or south america are getting it just it it makes zero sense for the planet. It makes zero sense for the communities from which this stuff is coming from. Yep. And as we look at the way that climate change is going to reshape and in is reshaping our global supply chains, we need to be building up that capacity now. Yep. You know, whether it's on food, whether it's on textile, whether it's on, you know, look at. I, I think there's an opportunity for businesses to look just at their supply chains right now. And just say, how do we get how do we get a little bit smaller? How do we get a little more efficient? How do we cut some of these gaps as well as we can? Uh, understand all these different price points and margins, 
to make ourselves resilient, you know, yeah. resilient yeah. for yeah. any shocks that are going to come. Food and agriculture, energy production, transportation are all like big things. But, you know, the one thing that's been, uh, you know, increasing in cost is, you know, human health and health services and those types of things. Um yeah, it's. I feel like it's all kind of tied together um, and and driven by a lot of these things. But yeah, it's it's interesting watching our our health systems uh, shift over time and still be kind of stuck in the past. Do you see those getting uh, kind of ripped apart and reapproached in the way that we're looking at transportation and energy production? Oh man, yeah. <laughs> so there's this piece <laughs> like the uh, the buzzword right now is one health. Um, and that's looking at planetary health, it's looking at uh, the health of people, it's looking at the health of ecosystems. It's a whole like this one health model. Um, and I, I, there's just there's something to be said about like industry and transients, right? Like people don't want to change until they have to. And uh, healthcare, you know, knowing what half of your family does, Jason, you know. <laughs> Is broken. We'll talk yeah. all day long about that. And we can talk about the environmental impacts of water impacting health. And a lot of those determinants and, uh, you know, like there's a place in Louisiana called Cancer Alley because that's where most of the plastics are created. And that's crazy carcinogenic. And they're just dumping that into the water. They're putting it into the air. And so you have this region where their cancer rates are just off the charts, you know. So there's a, there's this entire question. I could talk about this for a long time. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I, I, I think there is this this piece of we're, we're getting to this point where we're like poisoning ourselves. You yeah. know, you know, you've got young kids. I got young kids. I, mean, I don't know where you are in this department, but it's just like, you know, you, you we're looking at a world that we can actively, actively change and, you know, readjust. Healthcare is just doesn't want to budge for a bunch of reasons. Um and so it's it's crazy, right? Because on the one hand, you have like all these these medical innovations where people can and should be healthier than they ever have been before, but our destructive tendencies are 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 you know laissez-faire attitude towards how these pollutants are getting into our air and water are really coming back to bite us, yeah. and it's, certain communities are being impacted way more. It goes along racial lines. It goes along cultural lines. It goes across ethnic lines. It, it goes, you know, caste lines. Like if you are poor, you are more likely to be next to a dump. If you are black, you're more likely to be next to uh, a polluting industry, your coal plant, any of those things like that. That's just the way it goes, you know, in this country and other countries. You know, you don't have a, a processing center, a, a plastic yeah. production center in the rich part of the town. You just don't. It's hidden away, it's externalized, and there are people who are suffering way more as a result. So yeah. part of what we need to look at within our systems is, you know, this big ethical question, this big question around environmental justice for the people who are being impacted most, who we are externalizing along the way, you know, that is an, a whole option yeah. that we can get into. But I, I think a very short answer to your short question is, I think this health component, you know, like, basically what's going to the trash and what's going into production yeah. like and how do you make sure that what you're creating isn't harmful you know yeah. and it seems to be like a low barrier sort of questions like oh yeah this isn't going to kill anybody or any fish down the road most things do yeah. and so as we look at our systems going forward we also need to be taking that into account we really need to look at what's being externalized what costs are being externalized that people aren't getting marked up for but that pollution that that uh that wastewater whatever it is 
is getting picked up by somebody and it's usually poor people or it's in a municipality that you've never heard of a long ways away that needs to deal with stuff and they probably don't have the tax base to do it. And so as industry, as designers, as you're looking at your supply chains, figuring out where waste is going and how you shore that up, especially anything that is potentially toxic, airborne, water, whatever, that can be a huge thing that's going to help so many people that they'll never meet. If you want to continue the conversation, share your thoughts, or suggest topics for future episodes, be sure to connect with us on social media. You can find us on Instagram and LinkedIn at PlanCo or visit planco.com. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode. And until next time, keep playing, keep designing, and keep pushing the boundaries of what's next. This is Play in Conversations, signing off.